0: So, this was part of an extended experiment which was being done at this time by Mr. Sussman. Now, this is, <laughs> this is sound weird in hindsight, but they were trying to really push for uh, what is effectively a form of continuity. Now, Sussman mentioned how much he hated, ignore me, I'm just moving this, uh, how much he hated the fact that, you know, the ship would get all banged up and the next week would be fine, which is, Funny, because I literally just complained about that um, last episode, and the episode before that. Because, uh, you know, shockwave, and then, no, we're fine. So in this episode, they got banged up to hell, and they're still banged up to hell. Holy crap. This would eventually lead into some other design decisions going down the road. Now, normally I'd make fun. But I've already covered Deep Space Nine from my perspective. And one of the things that I discovered is that they're... Let me rewind a second. You ever do a job long enough that you've got a whole system of how you do it? Like it's, it's not even something you really have an easy time of explaining to someone else. It's just you hit this and this and this and this and this, and you're so efficient with it that you just know exactly what you're doing. And it probably looks easy to an outsider, but that's because you've already you know polished this process to such a fine sheen that you can just bam, bam, bam. Like how I do these, for example. So I'm sure at least some of you have something like that. That's how the development staff is on Star Trek. They are a well oiled machine when it comes to crafting television, for good and for bad. You can make fun, but that's been true since mid TNG. The policies and formats and systems that they have in place work very well in order to make sure that they keep the machine running and keep the episodes pushing out. And we've seen a lot of good stuff out of that, and some dreck. <laughs> So when they were going to do the Dominion War arc, as it's referred to, which is the, uh, the Season 6 thing, when they shifted into that, when they lost Deep Space Nine, spoiler alert, uh, that whole thing was something that they were not prepared to do. It was a different system. And they had different people working on different things, and it was such a new th- process that it was a mess. Now, I liked that arc, and I think it was well done, although it did have its holes and it did meander a bit. But that's because they had no idea what they were doing. It was basically starting making TV again from scratch. I mean, obviously they have the tools, they have the camera, they have the lights, they have the sets. But the actual process of crafting and building the episodes was completely different. Now, they then used that experience for the finale, the ten parts leading into the final episode. And they did a better job of it because they had that prep work. You already see where I'm going with this. Near as I can tell, they were already, as of this point in time, thinking of doing a season-long arc. In season three, they weren't there yet because remember one of the big focuses that that one of the big commands that the edicts that was handed down was more episodic. Remember that, so they weren't going to do that yet. But I know with total certainty at least one person on the, the the producer's staff who was really pushing for that, Braga. He really wanted to do his season-long arc, and I don't blame him because it's a cool idea. I think maybe like. Uh, Well, I think the Season 4 approach is better. Uh, Let me demonstrate. So Season 3 is this one arc. There's a bunch of little stuff and some meandering, and we'll see what we think of it as we go through it, but it is one arc. Season 4 is an arc, but as a consequence of that arc, it actually starts a new arc, which then goes forward, but as a consequence of that, it starts a new arc, which then goes forward, and so forth and so on. Each one dovetails rather smoothly into the next. And I'm not going to go specifics, but if you've seen Season 4, you know what I'm talking about. Either way, all of that came because of the fact that they were doing work to set up for more of that kind of internal continuity and more of that string continuity by doing experiments in Season 1 and Season 2. So, while this is just dipping the toe in the pool, that's still better than nothing, and it is a good, necessary prep work element. What's actually funny, if I might be so bold, is if several of the DS9 staffers were still working on this show, which most of them were not, they could have probably helped with that since they had experience from the two arcs I mentioned earlier in Deep Space 9 Anyways. So, uh, Roxanne Dawson directed this episode, and she also voices the computer. I only point that out because I wasn't able to 100% verify this, but based on most stories I've seen and the way it's framed when it comes to, like, the 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 behind-the-scenes, it sounds like she did a reading of the computer and then that was how she directed it to other people. I mean, that makes sense to me. When I'm directing voice acting work, most of the time I will sit down and I will vocally give an idea of the kind of performance I want while explaining the "hot why's and the wherefores and, you know, the backstory and all that other fun stuff. So near as I could tell, she gave that kind of performance, and they all said, that's just, can we just use that? She was like, "Ah, okay. So she just ended up being the voice. Go figure. We also find out that this is when the Tarkalians are mentioned for the first time in Enterprise, I believe. Uh, I haven't caught any previous mention. You're probably thinking, who the heck are the Tarkalians? Tarkalian is a word that's been used a lot in Star Trek as random alien race. They've never actually appeared, nor will they, until a later episode in Season 2. I already know the one, I already looked it up. It's regeneration. Go figure. But I just wanted to mention that because they're tying that in. So, this then leads to them being doomed. You know, the real kind of doomed. They are stuck here, super damaged, and limited to about warp 2. They established that it's going to take them probably in the year's range in order to get back to Jupiter. This is yet another reason why this one ship going this far out is probably stupid to begin with, without a support network already in place. I know, I know, the frontier, but... well... If this repair station wasn't nearby, and if that Tellarite wasn't helpful... You notice the Tellarites are just kind of generally helpful? Just keep that in mind for much later, because it's funny. This is not the first time that's come up. Anyways, if not for that Tellarite, and if not for that repair station, uh, yeah, they'd be dying. (laughs) Or they'd have to go generational ship, and, you know, they'd just find out years from now. Or maybe, maybe the Vulcans would come out looking for them. Maybe. And that would be the end of future Earth exploration, because, hey, your ship got stranded, damaged by a Romulan mine. Yeah, you're not ready to be out here. I just point this out because it's nice to have at least one other ship, you know? Let me, let me use another parallel here. Uh, you ever play any Final Fantasy game? In a Final Fantasy game, if someone goes down, the, the battle you're in becomes so much harder. Because now, not only are you down a person, but you're actually down two people because the second person now has to waste their time and turns trying to get the first person up. And the more people you lose, the more it tends to seesaw until you're screwed. And sometimes on certain fights, if you're not sufficiently prepared or lucky, you could basically get into a death loop where you res and die and res and die and res and die. Now, tactically speaking, this is part of a... A simple equation that I don't actually know what it's called, so forgive me. But it's the idea that one person and another person do not linearly eat at, add up to double the power. It's more like because of the fact that you now have another person who can do other things, and thus your tactical options have opened up in addition to simply having another guy who can whack on something, now your power has gone up exponentially. And this goes true with each additional party member. Now, this is true in a lot of aspects of strategy, but most notably, exploration. If you're out and about on your own, and you die, that's it. If you're out and about on your own, and you die, and one of your friends is nearby, they can come over and res you. If you're out with another person, they can res you on the spot, assuming they don't die too. Now, that's still dangerous, just a party of two. But the moment you go up to a party of three, it becomes substantially less dangerous, and same with party of four. I know this is kind of a weird sidebar, but I just point this out because Earth is being really, really dumb in this in this overall approach. And um, I'm just saying, there's plenty to explore closer to Earth where, you know, catastrophic failure doesn't mean doom. Right? Closer to the network, expanding slowly. I know, I know. They want to lunge out into the stars. Maybe maybe don't send your first actual capital ship to do that maybe wait until you have a fleet and then you send out your first exploration ship your first deep spaceship then go ahead and lunge out right no you realize if earth was attacked right now by the romulans or the klingons they really couldn't do much about it because their one capital ship is 100 light years over there currently stranded because of an interaction with a minefield I know, I know, I'm thinking tactically again. That's my problem. So, I do like how, once again, the fact that they are doomed is a matter of speed and distance. I do like how, as in the opposite of Doctor Who Syndrome, that actually matters. In fact, I was most strongly reminded, I had to look up the name of the episode of A Time to Stand, in the aforementioned DS9 arc, back in Season 6, where they get out, and I'm not going to explain the details, but they, their ship is damaged and, and in a mission, and the end of the episode is Bashir... Telling them, yeah, it's going to take us like 17 years to get home. And that's how the episode ends. And it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. <clears throat> so. They. go. We cut to Reed. He's going through physical therapy. God, That looks awful. <laughs> okay. It, it, I should probably explain the joke. Um, when I was. Uh, oh, God, this would have been. When was that? 15 years. Has it really been that long? About 15 years ago, I got run o- hit and then run over by a truck, and my left leg got turned into a jigsaw puzzle. And I had to have surgery in order to have some of that bone replaced, and obviously, you know, this is now a bad leg, even to this day. I never got physical therapy. There's a lot of reasons why. Money! Excuse me. But one way or another, that's not something I ever went through. I just kind of slowly learned how to use that leg again over the course of about a year and a half. So that was fun. I'm just wondering, would I have had to go through... Like, God, thank goodness, I didn't go through physical therapy. I just had to live with being a cripple for a year and a half. Whew! <laughs> At least that's the way that Reed seems to be talking about it. Uh, so, then he mentions the bloodworm, and there's one still stuck in there. Oh, he'll come out on his own, eventually. Oh, thank, thanks. Thanks, Phlox. Can Can I have any other doctor, please? So... Telluride is helpful. I actually mentioned that. And they, go to the sh- they go and they find the repair station. The repair station does a very invasive scan. Again, that's showing up. And the repair berths are actually modular, and they start expanding and allowing for more room for the ship, which makes a lot of sense. I'm going to talk more about the station later. So I, I am, as always, curious of your thoughts on that, but I'd, I'd like you to wait until we get there. It's going to be the last thing I mention. And hopefully we won't have another freaking crash on my computer. So, uh, Archer, Tucker, and T'Pol go over to the ship. And and this, I think, is the exact episode where I realize something. <sighs> They're the only characters, really. I mean, Reed kind of drifts into being a character, but he also drifts out of it. If I was to expand it, I'd say we have five characters on this show, counting Reed and Phlox. And... This is the problem with the main three formula, in my opinion. At a certain levels, it's almost not even worth trying to have other characters, because they're not. They're just there to to pull the Tasha thing, right? Like I said, TNG had the same issue. DS9 kinda did until they tried to push against it and become more of a uh, ensemble show. Voyager actually bounced around on this a bunch, because some of my favorite episodes are Harry Kim episodes, but they were few and far between. No, the one who really got shafted on that is actually Chakotay, but that, that's not going to that. <clears throat> My point being, this is one of those inevitable things that any long-standing series, whether it be show, book, game, or webcomic, has to run into. What do you do with your characters? And if you focus a lot of your time and attention on three, well, that's fine, but don't make me try to care about, say, when Travis dies. Spoiler. So, the main three go on, and I found myself actually wondering if the episode, if the show in general wouldn't be better if Hoshi and Mayweather were literally secondary characters as in in the same manner that some of the recurring guest stars are and then so the only so we actually have five main cast members. It was just something that kind of occurred to me. Don't mistake me. Uh, Linda Park is actually decent and I do like the guy uh, Montgomery I think who plays Travis. But the the harsh reality is The show doesn't do anything with them, or at least it hasn't so far. Then again, like I said, I could say the same thing about several other characters in several other Trek shows, so we'll see where they go with this. So, this they scan the ship and they say, All right, we want payment in exchange for the repairs, and it gives you several options. This is actually really, really cool. It then talks about there being a recreation facility, which also makes sense because you want people to not be on the parts of the ship being repaired so it can repair freely. Duh. I mean, especially since it's automated. So it has a little area with replicators, and we do talk about these being actual replicators. Huh. That's um, society-changing levels of technology. Sure wish someone would think to come back out here and check this out. Oh, that's right. They destroy the station, so there's no reason to. Right? Right? Uh, spoilers again. Uh, Yeah. Notice they actually show a really cool scene with the repair arm, which actually has a reclaimer, which takes in matter, and then produces something better from it. This is that ultimate recycling technology thing I've talked about a few times in Star Trek. You turn all your waste, whatever it is, debris or bodily waste, or just the bottle on your water bottle, And you process that that back down into raw matter, which you can then push out in any other form of matter. It becomes part of your resource pool, right? It's a cool idea, and it's an idea that's actually fascinated me since not only I got into Star Trek, but since I got into a game called Total Annihilation. So this is cool. I like how they're portraying it. Um, Tucker, of course... What? What? Oh, yeah, Tucker and Reed decide to look into this thing, figure out what's going on. By the way, this is another Archer is Right episode. Did you notice that? It's just, uh, thankfully, Archer actually is right in this one case. It's just, I'm not sure I agree with the fact that he is right. Let me explain what I mean by that. Obviously, Archer's right that this is suspicious. The station goes out of its way to kill Travis in a a certain manner, which honestly would have fooled just about anyone else. If not for very unique circumstances, they would have gotten away with this, and they would assume Travis is dead, and he would effectively be brain-dead within a few months. So, that's awful. But, um, I bring this up because if it wasn't for that subterfuge and, you know, the obvious ill-sinister thing... Archer wouldn't be right. And you're thinking, but that's the point of the episode. Does it have to be? As I was watching this episode, the, uh, the more I watched... I, I, this is a decent episode, don't mistake me. But the more I started thinking, I wish there was no twist. I wish the station wasn't secretly evil. I mean, that is, let's be honest, one of the oldest Star Trek cliches right there. And that's fine, cliches are fine... But it is nice to see the opposite every now and again. You know, it's like, oh my god, here's this seemingly good thing, and it's seemingly wonderful, and it's seemingly incredible, and then we kill and eat you. You know, that's, that, is ba- that is straight out of Twilight Zone, which is arguably where Star Trek started pulling that from. But you, you get the idea. Now, you're probably thinking, well, hang on, Laura. If the station wasn't evil, what's the point of the episode? Yeah, I I, I don't know. I can't possibly think of any kind of character-centric episode which doesn't have a threat of the week, which can still be interesting or engaging. That's nonsense. We have to have a dilemma and a threat every week. Otherwise, we can't possibly have good television. I'm being facetious, obviously, but my point is I think we could have used this for character moments. We could have used this for technology things. We could have even used this for a dilemma. Hear me out for a second. I want you to imagine that you are very technologically advanced to the point where you basically have really, really, really advanced tech, like post Voyager level tech, like Borg level tech. Okay. Now, let's say you're a good person. I know it's hard to believe, but just bear with me. Now, you, you want to help people out. So you want to reach out and help people. So you reach out to one of the alien races you can encounter. And they're like, oh, thank you. And they worship you. And they form the entire religions around you. And they start clinging to you. And they start going a little bit too far. And refusing to even deal with their own affairs. And constantly begging you for everything. And then the the religion wars start. And everything goes to hell. Now that is, of course, just one scenario. I'm sure there's, there's actually plenty of races where you can just show up and be like, hey, we're here to help. And it would go fine. But you can see how this could be problematic, especially at the level of tech you're at, right? So, what do you do? Well, what you don't do is you say, the prime directive says I should never interfere with anyone, and then sit on a pile of rocks and say piss off to everyone else. You decide to have a brain about how you do it. So, okay. Let's set up this automated facility. And this automated facility has some very specific rules. It scans it figures out it's habitable it's you know nice and polite and it adjusts itself to repair ships and basically provides a beacon for ships passing through the area to have something of a safe haven space is dangerous after all and and there's probably some really really good sensors and uh log uh not logs but like comm units on this thing i wouldn't have had the tellarite uh, answer them i would have had the station answer the call even from the extreme distance and so the station's like, you know, this is a automated repair facility. You are welcome to come here. And they're like, should we take a risk? I believe I heard something about a Telerite uh, freighter mentioning this in one of their reports, although that was several years ago. Huh. Well, given the circumstances, I think it's at least worth the risk. Let's go and check it out. Right? So there you go. Re- slight restructuring. And they go to the check this thing out, and they find it. And sure enough, it's here to help. Now... <laughs> This also explains several aspects of how this thing operates. Why does it need payment? Now, this is just my idea, of course, but the way I would do it is the reason it needs payment is because people get more suspicious if things are free. No, really, that's just kind of nature, psychological nature right there. If I reached out to a random stranger right now, and I had the power of Q, and I said, hey, I can fix all those problems, just, just pointing at their body, You know, the issue with your back, uh, the kind of hip issue where the bone's not quite in the right spot, that blood sugar issue, you've actually got a bit of a disease, you know, and I could clear that out, I could fix your lungs, and I've noticed your skin's having an infection here, which I can, I can just cure all that in one snap of my finger. But I do need your permission. And they're like, no, get away from me, weirdo. If I were to try and charge them, they're more likely to at least consider the opportunity because someone will be more suspicious of free than they will of a service which they are charged for. <laughs> now, I could go a lot into the psychology of why that is and the economic theory that sits behind it, but it boils down to the fact, if we're being honest, that there are dicks. Not biologically, I mean people who are dicks. And people who are dicks have ruined all of human society for all of human society so as a direct consequence of that we are more suspicious of people who are actually trying to help us because why would anyone try to help us it's got to be a trick so <clears throat> I think this station requests payment it doesn't matter what it is it just scans the ship and it's like okay here's a few things uh, pick a few things that obviously the ship shouldn't lose you notice it mentioned warp coils in there and a few things it could lose like the plasma No big issue. The station doesn't need it. If anything, it's just extra material to be used and recomposited into other material. It doesn't care. But it is something that now is making it so that people are more inclined to use it, right? This leads to the dilemma now of the episode. What do we do with this thing? Do we share knowledge of it? Do we take it back to Starfleet? Do we tell the Vulcans? What happens if the Klingons show up? What if someone tries to claim this thing? What if someone tries to conquer it or destroy it? What if this thing becomes relevant in an interstellar conflict? You know me in continuity. I would have this sucker come back in a future episode. Probably during the Romulan Earth War. Remember, that was not that far off that system that the Romulans claimed. Remember that? Although if I'm restructuring it, remember that episode would happen in the future. But I would reference it as being near there, just like it actually is so now the romulans want to claim this station because that way it will give their ships an edge against the federation and you could see how this could kind of develop into something and the ethics of it and the morality of aiding and why a race would want to do this and i think there's plenty to discuss while having several character moments it would be a bit of a talky piece i'm not trying to say it wouldn't but i think it would work instead uh no it's it's evil <laughs> Because people are dicks. So, now, as much as I I am kind of making fun, it's worth noting the episode does a good job with what it has. Because the take I was taking was more of a philosophical episode. Instead, this is a horror flick. This is trying to be a, a mystery tension kind of a thing. It's like, oh my god, what's it doing, and why is it doing, and what happened to Travis? Oh no! As an aside, though, while I'm nitpicking, I really wish the scenes where Travis is called down to the bay didn't happen. Because we know as soon as we see that, that something's up. Instead, imagine if they're beamed off and then all of a sudden, hey, Travis is dead, and we didn't get that pre- preempt, so we're just tr- we're lost, just like the characters are lost, until Phlox discovers this isn't Travis, and now it's like, ooh. But no, they give away the game way too early, because of course they're evil. Of course the station's evil. Why wouldn't it be? <sighs> so it's a mystery-horror thing. And what's funny... Is the mystery horror thing kind of does work. Because, you know, they, they do the filibuster. The, the computer deliberately obfuscates. That's actually important. Um, there's this funny bit where T'Pol is trying to hack the door. And I'm sitting there literally in my head. I'm thinking, just shoot it. Just shoot it. And then she picks up her gun and just shoots it. And I just started laughing. Um, so they push through. And they have a very portal aesthetic. Did you notice that? Nice, pristine, white, grimy, dirty, mucky. Um why don't why doesn't the station beam them out of that area? I mean, it has to have some kind of equipment in there to be able to hook up the people's brains to the computer core and to get their bodily fluids set up and all that. By the way, did you notice there was a vaudeire in there? Now that's interesting because that's not the kind of thing you just do on accident that the vaudeire um first of all have been in hibernation for six hundred years. As a Voyager, so 400-ish years. Uh, I guess that's probably closer to 380, but whatever. 400-ish years as of now. And given their little subspace corridors thing and all that fun stuff, it's entirely possible that they used to reach out this far. I I, and I know that's a weird thing to latch on to, but one of the reasons the mystery works, and I've been building up to this point, is the mystery is not, is the station evil? Because that's extremely obvious. It's, Why? We know why it needed the people, but that's not the why. Why is this station here? Why is it randomly repairing people, repairing ships in exchange for whatever, and also crewmen? Does it always take a crewman? Does it sometimes just let them go without needing an extra one because it doesn't really need another crewman or doesn't have space for one? How long has this been doing this? What was the original mentality behind setting this thing up? Why is this set up here of all places? And so forth and so on. There's a lot of whys that are, of course, never answered. And there's no follow-up to this episode, even though it starts repairing itself at the end of the episode. So that's a completely wasted teaser. Uh, Spoiler. Or no. um, Cliffhanger. We'll call it a cliffhanger. Because apparently someone watched Conspiracy and said, that's a good idea. I know I'm sounding negative here. It's just because I feel like this episode had tremendous potential and did absolutely nothing with it boy doesn't that sound like star trek in a nutshell um so then we have an action sequence which is stupid and i'm just going to say it that way the ship the, the station is so slow in reacting to everything that the only reason they manage anything is cuz the station allows them remember it has transporters and sensors and and just all kinds of things it actually scrambles their command codes which to me would mean that now they don't have control of the ship because the codes are scrambled. They're going to have to reset those. But it's okay. The moment the station disconnects from them, those codes are back to normal and they have control again, which is not how that works on any level. But then they're trapped by the thing. Maybe we should use a torpedo. I wouldn't recommend it. No, it's okay. Let's do it twice with no uh, consequence whatsoever. And they barely get away. Whew. Thankfully, all the other people on the ship, or excuse me, on the station were dead. So, you know, the fact that we just vaporized them, no problem, no problems. No, no ethical dilemmas here. And then Archer's like, I'm having breakfast with you this time. I kind of skipped over this, but I'm going to end on this point. This is why the main three thing kind of bothers me. Because the episode tries to make me care about Travis being dead and fails. There are ways it could manage this, but it doesn't. In fact, the only time they try to really humanize this is twofold. One with Archer, decent job there, actually. I'll give the episode that. You know why? Because Archer is trying to be more personable and reach out to the crew. I had a whole speech about that that I said twice from my perspective last episode. You remember that? Archer is trying to be more personable. And he had been, he, as we find out, a few weeks ago, which would have been just before the event, well, a few days before the events of, uh, Minefield, like, a, I guess a week before the events of Minefield, he was going to go ahead and have breakfast with Travis. Try to get closer to him. Try to connect with him. He put it off. And, He's obviously upset about this because, you know, I, now I'm never going to get that chance. I've been trying to reach out to my freaking crew, and I, he's dead! He's dead, and I've lost that chance, and it's gone. And I figured out why they hired Bacula. It's because he's really good at glaring. It's one of the only expressions he does consistently well. I can't even begin. He's, he's just got this thing where he kind of flattens out his eyebrows and really stretches out his eyes and his mouth. And, he just, and I'm talking, so it kind of ruins it. But he just gets this glare thing going on. Um... God, that hurts my eyes. I wonder if you ever had headaches on the set. The way it does not work is with Hoshi, who tries to be like, I'm Hoshi, and I totally connected with Travis. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Don't. Don't pull that. That is right up there with a character who is like the brother of a character we know, who we've never seen before, never, never met before, and they're dead. And we're supposed to care. It doesn't really work quite that way when you do it that way in fiction. Because we don't have any investment in it. The only way for that to work is for there to be a repeated and consistent pattern of consequence to the death so that we become invested in the character after they died because we keep seeing the echoes of it. Season 3 will do this pretty well, consequently. So Hoshi coming down and just being like, "Ah, oh, we were friends. No, you weren't. Not even for a second. Did you have anything on camera? I, okay, I'm being facetious. There was that bit where Travis took the helm, took, took the command chair, but that's about it. And that's my point. Hoshi and Travis are so neglected from a character perspective that it's getting a little bit silly at times. And I don't think that's going to get any better going forwards. We'll see. But before we have another power outage thing, I'll see you next time, guys.